2: Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 184 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the most revered and influential composers of the past century. A pioneer of the music style minimalism, who has crafted groundbreaking operas, ballets, symphonies, and many film scores, including three for which he received Oscar nominations. Kundun, The Hours, and Notes on a Scandal, several for Errol Morris documentaries, including The Thin Blue Line, and most recently, one for Jane, Brett Morgan's terrific new documentary about the early work of primatologist Jane Goodall. I'm talking about the legendary Philip Glass. But first, I sat down at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter with my colleague Ashley Collins, a staff reporter who leads our coverage of legal matters. Ashley, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me, Scott.
2: It's been an interesting... 11, 12 days or so here. We are not getting a lot of sleep, any of us. And, you know, just covering this whole earthquake that has rocked the film industry and aftershocks of which are being felt far beyond it. And that is, of course, the the Harvey Weinstein saga. He's been a leading producer and distributor in this business for roughly 40 years. He was the focus several days ago of articles in The New York Times and The New Yorker that featured many women alleging that he had sexually harassed, assaulted, or even raped them. Many others have since come forward with their own stories, and virtually all of the industry over which he sort of reigned has excommunicated him, have slammed him. I want to ask you about the reason why it might have taken as long as it did to tell this story. There are a lot of people that are going around suggesting this was an open secret. That's the phrase that people have been using, an open secret in Hollywood. And you know, one of the accusers even has suggested that the entertainment media deliberately covered this up out of some sort of desire to protect Harvey Weinstein. But I can speak for us here at The Hollywood Reporter. We, for the last, I would say, year and a half since the roughly when the Cosby stuff came out, we said, should we be, is there anything like this going on in our own backyard? And he came up as a possibility based on some rumors and insinuations and tweets and stuff. We looked into it. We tried. But we could not get anyone to speak on the record as hard as we tried and at great risk to Our livelihoods. And, you know, we felt it was an important story to tell, of course, and that if one person said something, a lot of other people would presumably follow. As with Cosby, the floodgates would open. But until you can get that first person to jump, it's very hard. So, why, from a legal standpoint, is it so scary for people to come forward and make accusations on the record and also for media outlets like ours to tell this story without having those kinds of people on the record?
1: Cosby is actually a good example for this because after those allegations started to come out he denied them and one of his accusers Janice Dickinson sued him for defamation and that can just as easily happen the other way which is what Harvey Weinstein had threatened here he had threatened to go after the New York Times because of of what it wrote with people on the record and when you're able to attribute a quote directly to someone else that lessens some of the liability on the publication but not all of it Mm -hmm. so it is a very tricky situation you don't want to get sued and then you're dealing with the entirely separate fact that people who have been in situations where they have been sexually assaulted or sexually harassed It's a painful, humiliating, awful thing to do to come forward. Mm -hmm. And when you're talking about someone who is as powerful within your industry as Harvey Weinstein is, that makes it even scarier. So I'm actually not that surprised that it took that long for someone to be willing to say point blank, this happened to me. Yes, you can print it. And yes, you can use my name.
2: Some of the people who were on the receiving end of his bullshit over the years – have signed, we've since learned, NDAs, nondisclosure agreements, in return for being quiet and not going public with what happened to them. They they took cash settlements and went away. How common is that? And how much does that hold at this point, both legally and practicably, in the sense that if they're, you know, one of the people who apparently signed a nondisclosure agreement was Rose McGowan? Rose McGowan has since come out and tweeted, Harvey Weinstein raped me. Is that because somehow the non-disclosure agreement no longer holds up, or because we just assume at this point that Harvey Weinstein's not gonna sue people who are accusing him because it would only make his situation worse?
1: Unfortunately, I think these kinds of NDAs are a lot more common than we would think. And I don't think they're limited to Harvey Weinstein. Mm -hmm. And I think that is going to start to come out Mm -hmm. as we progress through the situation and the web expands. But as to why someone like Rose McGowan would speak out now, I can't guess. You know, I don't know what's going on in her head. But if it were me Mm -hmm. and these stories had come out, I would feel safer saying something now. Mm -hmm. Because it's a burden to keep that kind of thing to yourself and yeah, I think there's a certain degree of it's going to look really bad if he sues any of these people mm-hmm. because he couldn't sue her for defamation if it's true. He'd right. have to sue her for breach of contract, which is just going to make him look like garbage. Right.
2: As if that's not already happening, but you're, yeah, it would make it worse.
1: And the other thing is, NDAs don't stop people from talking to police or investigators. So if the internal. TWC investigators reach out to these people, they're allowed to talk about what happened. If the police reach out to these people, they're allowed to talk about what happened. And in jurisdictions where the statute of limitations isn't an issue, they can go to the police and file a police report. And once that happens, it's public. Like the media can report on the police report without this person ever violating the NDA.
2: So does Weinstein actually have a legal case against anyone at this point? You know, because it seems like... Whether or not he would pursue it, we know he's threatened the New York Times. But the lawyer who was leading that effort has left him, Charles Harder, who I guess had been the guy behind the Gawker the suit that ended with their evaporation, right? Yeah. But that guy's not doesn't want to even be associated with Harvey Weinstein, along with the rest of his key legal people. I guess David Boyes, Lanny Davis, and Lisa Bloom, who I want to ask you about because you interviewed her for us recently. It struck me as extremely bizarre that a woman whose whole brand was representing the victims of sexual predators would, for several days after all of this started coming out, still remain a legal advisor, I guess not formal legal counsel, to Weinstein. What was that about?
1: She was trying to get him to apologize. She said she was tired of people like Bill Cosby and Bill O'Reilly and Donald Trump. The second these accusations surface, they immediately go on the offensive. These women are liars. This never happened. And she told me that she thought if she could get him to apologize, that that would mean something to the women.
2: But instead, what ended up happening, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seemed like she came across as an apologist for him because she's the one that's put out this ridiculous statement like, oh, Harvey's a dinosaur. You know, he was a product of the 60s and 70s and whatever. And, you know, there are a lot of people who are products of the 60s and 70s who don't go around serially harassing or doing worse to people so I just you know even her own mother Gloria Allred chastised her for this it just struck me as extremely bizarre but but moving on to the thing that you're working on now from what I understand you're looking at Harvey Weinstein's contract and we know he was a very savvy guy in a lot of ways and it seems like that manifested itself in his contract because today he's meeting with the board of the Weinstein company which fired him and which includes his own brother Bob and he may actually have something of a case right
1: If this TMZ story that they published last week is true, the Weinstein company is in a really tough spot. TMZ says they have seen his contract and there is a clause in there that says if Weinstein treated someone improperly in violation of the company's code of conduct, he had to pay the settlement to that person himself, Mm -hmm. and then pay damages to the company. And it was $250,000 for the first instance, $500,000 if it happened a second time, $750,000 if it happened a third time, and a million for each instance after that. And that reportedly would cure the misconduct, meaning they can't fire him. I talked to several lawyers, and none of them have any clue why... The company would agree to put something like this in a contract because it makes it really hard to argue that you had no idea this was going on.
2: I mean, is it possible they just never envisioned any scenario where it would blow up to this extent because I mean, the the bottom line is that aside from having his own last name in the brand of the company, he essentially was the company. I mean, he was the the reason people worked with the Weinstein company was because he had great creative taste that Nobody's disputing. I mean, the company, first Merrimax and then Weinstein Company collectively are responsible for five movies that won the Best Picture Oscar, so many others. And he just had great taste. Bob did the commercial movies side of the company, but you know, people can go elsewhere to do those kinds of movies. It's harder and harder to find somebody like Harvey to make art house kinds of movies. So do you think they just were willing to take the risk in order to, this is like the price of doing business with Harvey from their point of view?
1: One of the attorneys I spoke with said that the company must have felt like it had to do it to keep him and that it wanted to keep him Mm -hmm. and maybe there was some degree of if he gets to four instances and he's got to start writing million dollar checks maybe he'll stop doing this because it it also was reported that if he hid settlements Mm -hmm. to try to get around having to pay that company this damages essentially Monetary slap on the wrist that he could get in trouble for that.
2: Well, the fact that this kind of language even existed in the contract suggests they knew that there was some bad behavior. Again, maybe I don't want to say that they knew there was sexual, severely unacceptable behavior, but they knew that he was doing bad things. If they're imagining a scenario where there's well four settlements or more or whatever, but when they fired him, initially he was he was I think suspended essentially or put on a he took
1: voluntary he took a
2: voluntary leave. So then they came back very shortly after as as more and more came out and pressure built and they said a new incident has come to our attention that has caused us to now terminate him. What could that have been that would have made any difference between what, when they first allowed him to take a leave and when they then suddenly felt days into this that they could fire him?
1: Well, what we had been hearing initially was that people within the company knew he was having affairs and believed them to be consensual. Mm -hmm. And I'm guessing what a statement like that means is that they were given reason to believe that they were not consensual, which made a difference.
2: To bring this all back to awards, which are not the most important thing in the world, but which are the focus of this podcast usually, I want to talk now about the Oscars and Academy connections to Harvey Weinstein, who was basically synonymous with Oscars for the last 30 years. He as we say, you know, was not only behind a lot of movies that did very well at the Oscars, he personally won the Best Picture Oscar 19 years ago for Shakespeare in Love, on which he was credited as a producer, unlike the other four that won the Best Picture Oscar and were productions that his company distributed. He is famous for revolutionizing the way people pursued Oscars. It became much more a marketing and publicity effort, and he was better, and he and his team were better than anyone at that. What's happened in the in the last few days is that the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, which had only expelled one other person in, in its 90-year history, somebody who had loaned his screeners to somebody else, which was against the policy he had signed, that was the only person who had been expelled ever before. Now the board voted on Saturday to expel Harvey Weinstein as well. And this brings up an interesting situation because the Academy is a private organization. So- technically, I guess, as long as they operate within their own bylaws, they can do whatever they want, as certainly as far as who is or isn't a member of their organization. But they are now wading into territory where they are going to apparently be evaluating the behavior of their members, and in some cases, disciplining them prior to any due process in the actual legal system, because as of now, Harvey Weinstein has not been charged with or prosecuted with anything. So my question is. Does he have any recourse with the academy if he ever chose to pursue it, which seems unlikely? And also, what's going to happen if the academy now starts going after others? There are some people who have been tried and convicted, like Roman Polanski, who had a sexual interaction with a child and then fled after being convicted, and Stephen Collins, who is an admitted child molester. And then you get into the grayer area where you've got like Nate Parker, who was tried and found not guilty, but more stuff has since come out, or Casey Affleck, where there were settlements. I mean, what is the Academy going to do without getting itself sued here in this situation?
1: Because it's a private organization, I think you're right that as long as they're operating within their own bylaws, I don't think they're liable for any of this. What is going to happen, though, is that it is going to become a very slippery slope. Mm -hmm. If you start kicking out people like Roman Polanski for sexually related offenses, you're going to have people asking, "Okay, well, what about racists? What mm-hmm. about people who go on anti-Semitic rants?
2: Mm-hmm. Mel Gibson is a member.
1: Exactly. Like, where does it stop? Right. And at what point do you have to rewrite those bylaws to include a very specific morality clause?
2: Because they're suggesting in the in the same short statement that the Academy put out on Saturday announcing that Weinstein was out, they said, we're continuing to work to develop some sort of like an honor code or moral, or you know, code of honor. But it's sort of strange to me that they kicked him out before doing that, because you would think that then they could say, based on this new code of honor that we've implemented, he has failed to adhere to X, Y, or Z. Instead, he's out, and now they've got to build it around him. And you know, I wonder if maybe one thing they'll end up doing is saying, we're not going to relitigate the past because you're getting into it's a, too, a, too much, but going forward- And this is where I would have thought they would have done this before kicking him out. Moving forward, anyone who is found to do this or have done this or whatever is gone. So what do you think is the likeliest way they'll address this without getting themselves caught any further in a sticky mess here?
1: I think they had to act quickly Mm -hmm. because they didn't want to be President Trump not denouncing Nazis in Charlottesville. Like, this is something that everyone in the industry is up in arms about. Mm -hmm. This was a no brainer Mm -hmm. on their part. They had to. And you can't make major policy decisions as quickly as you can make a very black and white decision like that. Mm -hmm. So those kinds of things take time. And I think they probably are having discussions about, okay, should we make this retroactive? Mm -hmm. It's going to be a nightmare either way. Right,
2: right.
1: Like either it's going to be a ton of work for them, essentially going through the histories of all of their members.
2: 8,427 <laughs> members. Some of them are over 100 years old. That means they've been in this business a long way back, back to the point where casting couch interactions were not widely deemed unacceptable. So there's a lot of skeletons in the closet that they're going to have to potentially address here.
1: I think the smartest path forward would be implementing some kind of a complaint procedure. Mm -hmm. If you've had an experience with racism, sexism, harassment, assault with someone who is a member of the academy, here is how you let us know about that. And then we'll consider it.
2: And presumably they'll have to also figure out if those kinds of accusations can be made anonymously or if the accused gets to face their accuser, what sort of process there will be. I mean, it, I I will say I talked to one person who one of the few survivors of the Hollywood blacklist of the McCarthy era, the Red Scare, and not to in any way suggest that, you know, they're very di- they're very different situations. But the person said what Harvey Weinstein did is obviously horrendous, but we may be heading towards another situation where there are a lot of unintended consequences, people pointing fingers at other people without you know, sometimes with justification, sometimes not. And before you know it, this can devolve into something even worse than what it is now. So I'm not sure myself what the right thing or wrong thing here is, but clearly a lot of people have some thinking to do. And I'll just close by mentioning that, you know, for those of you, again, who are listening out of interest about awards, the Weinstein Company had only a few plausible contenders to begin with before any of the Harvey stuff came out and those films are now sort of in limbo in the sense that, you know, who knows if anyone will work with the Weinstein Company, if they'll still be in business any, you know, beyond the next few days. But all of what's happened is certainly not going to benefit Win River, which was their primary hopeful before all of this, with Jeremy Renner, the directorial debut of Taylor Sheridan, who had been nominated last year for writing Hell or High Water and then also the current war on which Harvey originally was credited as a producer before pulling his credit off of that before he was fired i think maybe he saw the that he would be taking flack and so better to distance himself from it although i hear he always believed he would survive this as an you know at the company so this is all obviously the least important stuff in the grand scheme of things but since this is a podcast about awards we'll just note that really the only movies that this could have any direct impact on this season are Wind River and the current war. So with that, Ashley Collins, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And now for my conversation with Philip Glass. I sat down with the 80-year-old one week ago in a suite in the Lowe's Regency Hotel in Hollywood, just hours before the documentary Jane had its Los Angeles premiere at the Hollywood Bowl, accompanied by a live orchestra performing Glass's score. Over the course of our conversation, he and I discussed a wide range of topics, among them, How the son of a radio repairman first fell in love with music, wound up studying at a conservatory at the age of 8 and entering college at 15. Why, after graduating from Juilliard, he went to Paris, and how, once there, he ended up working with two teachers who changed his life, Nadia Boulanger and Ravi Shankar. Why, even after the first performance in 1976 of Einstein on the Beach, a groundbreaking five-hour opera that he composed, he continued to spend most of his days as a cab driver what, in his view, minimalism is and is not, and why he is not always thrilled to be so closely associated with it, why he became, in the words of one journalist, the most collaborative composer since Stravinsky, working with everyone from David Bowie to Martin Scorsese, and how he came to be a part of and approach the composition of a score for Jane. So, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Mr. Glass, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. We always just begin with a basic one. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living?
0: Well, I was born in Baltimore, Maryland, and my father had a record shop and a radio repair shop. I grew up in the music business, actually. Yes. <laughs> uh, by At the age of 12, I was responsible for keeping the inventory, and by 15, I was a record buyer for the store. My <laughs> brother and I did that. I left very early for college. I went to the University of Chicago when I was quite young and I began music really when I was six or seven and but I began studying at the Peabody which was a great music conservatory. Well I wanted to ask and you that about work. that because you were the youngest student they had there. At, you, well at the conservatory yes. because I was studying flute and they didn't have that in the preparatory division there was no one to teach that so I was put into I was the youngest person in the conservatory but that was just an accident. But that was my instrument uh, until I went to Chicago and I began doing piano then. But
2: I want to ask you, you know, when you went off to the Peabody Conservatory, as you say, six or seven years old, you have to be pretty good to
0: just go there. So what was your... Oh, not so much. So you have to remember in those days, uh, the idea of music education being valuable and I would say even essential, mm-hmm. that was a much more uh, well-known idea. My mother was a school teacher, so there was not a lot of money around for things like lessons. Mm-hmm. I was allowed to have lessons with, I would rather have had lessons in two instruments, so I was only allowed to have one. But really, uh, music education was considered a, a collateral advantage. It was part of education, and for all the, all the right reasons. And when we began dismantling that in our country, when I went to high school, you were given an instrument, you didn't even have to own one. And I found that to be very true around a lot of the country. And people played in marching bands. It didn't matter. Yeah. It didn't matter. And then at the same time, it's important to remember, this is in 1946, 47, 48. There was a whole wave of of, uh, wonderful musicians who came from Europe, refugees from the Second World War, and they were populating the conservatories so that you had this amazing teaching staff, and then you had this very common idea that music was important and part of education. So that's what I grew up with.
2: Now, how does somebody end up going off to the University of Chicago at just 15? You had been an excellent student all around, or it was because you were... I wasn't
0: particularly excellent, but that wasn't the point. I discovered... My mother was a librarian at the school where I was going to high school, and I would wait around to get a ride home from her. We all shared rides with other people. So at any rate... I spent my time browsing through the college catalogs to see where I might be going someday. And by, this is really by accident. I was looking at the University of Chicago and I discovered that the admission was by uh, examination and that high school completion was irrelevant. <laughs> they didn't really care about right. that. So I decided to send away for the, the entrance exam. And you know, we had advisors and they said, oh, well, this said to my mom, don't, don't worry, he he can't possibly pass, but it's a good experience. Right, right, right. Well I did pass. <laughs> and then then the then the question was what was going to happen? Now I discovered many years later, I thought it was my father who want, would allow me to go and my mother would want me it was the opposite. <laughs> my mother being a teacher herself saw an opportunity for a, a great education and she was the one that supported my leaving, and I left home when I was 15.
2: So you graduated at 19, and what I understand her feeling was at that point, you were thinking about, do I go to New York, do I go to Juilliard? She was not especially enthusiastic about that oh, idea, no,
0: right? no, <laughs> uh, no, she, <laughs> I wrote a book some, not too long ago called um, Words Without Music, and the very first thing in the book is the story of my mother Meeting me when I'm nineteen, seeing me at nineteen, and said, Mom, I'm going off to a musical and she said, Well, if you go to music school you'll end up like your Uncle Henry, traveling from hotel to hotel and never having a place of your own. And actually, my Uncle Henry was a drummer up in the bo- what we call the board ball in the hotels up in, in, in the Catskills. I actually thought Uncle Henry was a pretty good guy, <laughs> but the rest of my family thought he was a disaster. Right. But I didn't and she said, And you'll spend and you'll spend the rest of your life traveling. And I thought that sounds great and there
2: you Well, go. Now, now
0: at 80 I have spent my life traveling <laughs> number one mom was absolutely right right that is what happened right. and I'm actually starting to get tired but again at 80 I think you might get tired You're, of being, uh, doing anything. you might be <laughs> being tired of doing astrophysics right, or, right. or even running a company there's a certain fatigue with age that counts but I don't regret it at all I, I mean that was what I did and I can tell you more about the stories about her, but she was a wonderful woman. Now,
2: if you hadn't gone to the Peabody Conservatory or Juilliard, would you still have found your way into music anyway, do you think? I'm sure
0: I would have. But I had the idea uh, when I was in Chicago that I was going to go to music school. I would go to the best school in the country. So the choice was, it seemed to me, I had to go to Juilliard. Mm -hmm. Now, I had no qualifications to enter Juilliard. So when I went there... I could play the flute, and I had been writing music, but I didn't want to show them the music I was writing. And they said, "Look, you can register as a non-matriculated. It means I can register for courses, but I wasn't in the school." Right. And they said, "In one year, you show us your music, and we'll decide." Well, I found out later that they told everybody that, <laughs> but no one actually got accepted right. except that time I did. Wow! I wrote wow. twelve pieces. I wrote a piece every month, um, a little bit quicker than a month. That's I could write it every three weeks. Yeah. And I showed up a year later with a stack of composed compositions. I don't know what they thought. I think they said, well, any kid that's going to work that hard, let's give give him a a a chance. Yeah, right. So I got into the school. I wanted to be in a place where the music world was alive and well in New York. And there was a very good school to go to. And I thought I might be able to meet some really good composers, and I did.
2: What was the dream, end goal at that time when you came out of Juilliard? If you could have done anything, or while you were even at Juilliard, what were you dreaming of doing with your well, life?
0: I was actually dreaming of going to Paris and finishing my studies with Nadia Boulanger. But I very stupidly, I got a grant from, was it the Ford Foundation? To be a, they had a residency of composers in the schools. And I said, well, I'll do that one and I'll go next year. And they said, no, you have to reapply next year. So I took the chance and I... Right. I took that it was in Pittsburgh and had a great time there and they asked me to renew it so and then I said well what happens there? so well, if you renew it you'll have to apply again so I was actually I got the Fulbright three times Wow oh my and God. the third time I went which was really I mean that was really <laughs> I'm so,
2: glad you got to use it at well, least at some point
0: <laughs> I, 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 I thinking back on it that was a ludicrous thing to do I should have just gone to Paris immediately but as it was I got to Paris at the age of 25 instead of 22.
2: And that changed your life, that whole chapter, right? Because you've talked about that there She was a
0: great master teacher.
2: Well, it was her and another. You've said that the way you've described it, I think, in your book that you to this day feel that there were two great teachers in your life and one of them is always sort of standing on each shoulder. Yes, uh, that's right. That's can right. you tell
0: well, who these people were well, and how you- that, One of the things that happened in Paris, I discovered that the Fulbright wasn't uh, a, a very generous. <laughs> I, I needed to supplement <laughs> right, money, right, and I began right. working uh, in movies, and I got hired to work with Ravi Shankar as his assistant.
2: Now, when you say you began working in movies, what, did, what in what capacity?
0: Well, in different ways. In the beginning, I was just uh, his assistant. Later, I was doing doublage. Or that means where you put the voices onto the... I learned amazing things. Later on, when I did a piece called La Bella Labette, I was able to write a score that matched the lips of the singers. Oh, my God! I, I understood that the labial is where the lips come together. Right. That if, if you hit the labial about once every minute and a half, anyone who sees it will think that it's sync, <laughs> And that's what we were doing. So I actually learned how to do that years before I wrote the piece. Some years later I decided I wanted to write, take this idea and I was using it and it became La Bella La That's so funny. Which by the way is coming to LA at that oh, time. Oh cool. Yeah. Well so tell us
2: though about these two people who had such a profound impact well, on your life. How did you first cross paths with each of them and well, what was their lasting impact on you?
0: The teacher that I was supposed to be studying with was, well, and I did study with her, but again, uh, I was always looking for uh, improving my living stand a little bit, and by luck I was invited to be Ravi Shankar's assistant on a movie, so I took the job. Right. And then, then I had another personality equally as engaging and, and masterful in, in his field as she was. That period, I, it seemed like I had two angels on my shoulder, one on my left and one on my right, one taught through fear, and one taught through love.
2: Nadia Boulanger was. through... I'm not going to
0: say which one was. The oh, best. You're going to tell you, me. <laughs> you, but you, you we can, can figure, figure that out. out. And I have to say that in the end, the methodology didn't matter. Right. Uh, they were both masters of of music, and I learned from both of them.
2: So it was because of Ravi that you ended up after this period in in Paris, traveling then throughout Central Asia and studying things like Buddhism and yoga and things oh. like that. Right.
0: I had actually started out at Juilliard at uh, the age of 20, a friend of mine and I. We heard there was something called yoga, but we didn't know what it was. Now, yes. this is 1957. Sure. So there weren't any yoga studios in New York, as far as we could tell. So we were anxious to figure out what this was. So I looked finally looked into the white pages under Y, <laughs> and there was a guy there, Yogi Vitaldas, <laughs> who turned out to be... A yoga instructor. Uh, uh, he turned out to be the teacher of... Uh, uh, human 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 okay well i did at the time i had no idea that that was the case <laughs> but so,
2: you you were open to a lot of these things even before ravi but ravi I'm, ex- exacerbated i'm that.
0: open today to those things to those things I mean, yes. I'm, I'm still uh, go, discovering i mean there are many more things to learn that i won't be able to live to see all of them but i still I'm, I'm taking up disciplines and things that interest me i tend to add them to what i'm doing so that my daily activities, it's hard for me to get done by midnight. Uh There are a lot of things to do, and music certainly is one, but uh, the things I learned from Yuki Vitalis and other people, that's always been part of my world. That's great. So it's, it's just the way I've lived.
2: Now, when you returned to the States, and I guess specifically to New York, I think in 1967, from what I've read, you had to face the reality that I think most aspiring composers have to face, which is that it's very hard to make a living and do your work.
0: No, not completely true. You can take a job teaching. You but didn't I, want to do that. I didn't do that. Well, the reason I didn't was that I was, it's because of my contact with Ravi, he was a composer and a performer. So now I had seen that already. I'd seen that with John Coltrane. I'd seen it with Bud Powell. When I was living in Chicago, I would go down to the Beehive. It was a place on 55th Street, I think it was. That was in the 50s, mind you. So that was 53, 54, 55. And Charlie Parker was there, and, wow. and Billy Holiday was at the, uh, she was on Cottage Grove. I had already come into contact, and not just them, but downtown. Of course, it would be like that. The white musicians played in a different club. Right. I think it was called the Modern, Modern Jazz Club. It was downtown, and I would hear Stan Getz there. And So I had been instructed through what I saw that the composer could be a performer. So when I came back from Paris, that was the model that I chose.
2: And the idea of teaching, though, had a particular lack of appeal as well.
0: Growing up with my mother was a wonderful woman, but all her friends were teachers, And I consider them the most boring people in the world. Now, that's really not fair, (laughs) of of course. I'm sure there were wonderful people among them, too. But at 13 and 14 and 15, I was not interested in my mother's friends. And to me, being a teacher meant a life of drudgery. Now, I didn't understand that it was a vocation, a vocation, a a very high vocation, too, like medicine. Teaching is one of the great things that we can do. I didn't at that time, at, at 14 and 15, I had no idea like that.
2: How did you pay the bills during those years when you were first well, back in the States?
0: Well, I what everyone did. I got uh, all kinds of day work and that went on until I was maybe 41 or 42.
2: Give us a few examples. There are some colorful well, ones.
0: Know, don't romanticize this. Everybody did this. Right. Mean, people, okay, but you, you did like, what? Well, well, well we, I had a moving company with my cousin Jean. i had a plumbing company with my cousin Jean. actually my cousin Jean and i he was a sculptor right so he was in the same boat i was right. we had no we didn't have a weekly paycheck so we did whatever we could we moved furniture then we did plumbing then i left that because i discovered that it was very hard on my hands i'm sure i was working for well-known artists and i who became my lifelong friends of mm-hmm. course Cab driving, though, right? That was another one. Well, that was, it seemed like a good idea. However, (laughs) the difficulty was that at that time in New York, now we're really talking about the early 70s now, 74, 75. Cab drivers were being robbed and sometimes murdered at the rate of six or seven a year. doesn't sound like a lot. But if you're the guy that's going in and picking up the cab... <laughs> it doesn't sound... It, good. It, it, it's, in those days, we didn't have a partition between the back and the front. So it was much more vulnerable.
2: But the appeal of those kinds of jobs was that you could well, basically could make on, your own schedule, right?
0: I could go on tour for three weeks with my ensemble, which had already been working since maybe 1969 and 1970. Mm -hmm. I could do that and come back and go back to work. All these other jobs were part... They were jobs that I could do simply by putting an ad in the paper. And it was easy to get work then. You didn't need a lot of money to, to, to live on. The big difference now is that today, young people have to work five or six days a week. In those days, you could work three days a week, and you could pay your rent and your hut. It was much easier. And When people asked me how I did it, the young people, I said, well, actually, it was much harder for you than for me. It was really easy.
2: Well, let me ask you, and this is a a long-winded question, but I think it's necessary. When you came back here again, it was about 1967, and then I think for roughly the next decade, maybe give or take a a year or two in either direction, you began making a a sort of music that has been labeled minimalism. I think that you are still very closely associated with that, but I know that you want to emphasize that that was really just that decade of your life, and now you revisit it at concerts and things, but that was a specific period, a specific time. So for people who may not know, can you explain what exactly minimalism is, because it's been described by some as quote, the last big idea, close quote, in classical music, and also just how you arrived at at doing
0: it. I've never tried to explain it because I always thought the whole thing was, a naming things out that way was not useful. But looking back on it, you have to remember I had a very close association with artists at the same time. And the art world was going through an interesting moment when instead of the content of a work would not be an image, it would be a process.
2: Jackson
0: Pollock well Jackson Pollock could be one but a little bit later it could be Saul LeWitt Mm -hmm. and a little bit later would be a friend of mine my age or a little bit younger than me Richard Serra so now you have to look at it this way the idea was to relieve the art world or the music world of being fixated on an image like a face or a table with fruit on it or maybe a melody that you can sing easily the idea was that well if you don't have that then what do you have and so we began working, and, and I was very closely associated with the artists because I was working for some of them. They always made money before the musicians did, so they could be, they might be in the Castelli Gallery making, getting a, a stipend every month, and then they would hire me to, I was, I used to work for years.
2: Now the music incarnation of this though, the way it's been described by one person, maybe tell me if this is wrong, but quote, pattern changing over long tracks of time filtered through electric organs and saxophones and insistent beat of pop, repetition, as in the music of, I guess there are some old masters that you could say. But basically, the, the repetition aspect I want to ask you about. That's not a
0: bad description. It's not? No.
2: But explain the repetition, because...
0: Well, well there's another way to say it. It was more like theme and variation. What happened is that there, it wasn't actually repetition, actually... What we discovered, I hadn't been at that time. If you play the same music over and over again, no one would listen to it. But if you kept changing it, but slowly, the hearer would be able to follow the music more easily. So the question, it wasn't, it was actually never repetition. It was, it was about mutation. Mutation. But that escaped most people because they, they weren't aware of the fact that, that it was changing.
2: But where in you did this come from? Was it something well, that you'd learned from Ravi? I or- love
0: it from Indian music. There's another interesting thing. I was talking, not too long ago, I was talking, giving a talk with a percussionist from India. We were talking to a group of people, and they were talking, he was talking about Indian music, and I, I it was my turn to talk, and I said, by the way, you understand that Indian music is a binary language. He said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, it all comes down to twos and threes. Twos and threes are like zeros and ones, odds and evens. That's what I learned from Ravaji, and that's what I, for and." Allaraka was his percussionist, and I stu- actually studied with Allaraka.
2: So there wasn't somebody in this country who you could point to and say, "I'm doing something similar to this person." No. It was really about no I, India.
0: It wasn't similar; it was identical. Right, and and it wasn't anything that was I could have learned it uh, in New Haven or right. in uh, right. or in Boston or in Cambridge. It, right. No one was doing it. I knew it because through my contact with Ravi, I went to India after that. And spent some time, not a lot of time, three or four months the first time, but over the next twenty-five years, I probably went twenty times to India. Wow, wow! And I spent time with the Katakali in the south. I went to the uh, big concerts in, in, in Bombay and in New Delhi and in Calcutta. And I, my friends, uh, a man Narina Menon, who was the head of the National Theatre in Bombay at the time, he became a friend of mine. He was an older man, and we would go to the concerts together and. We went down to the Madras and to the uh, annual music festival. This was always at Christmas time, mm-hmm. and he sat next to me, and, he, and by clapping his hand, he he taught me how to listen to the music.
2: And you never forgot that. Never.
0: And then I said with all rock, and I began trying it. But the point was, is that when I was talking to this part years later, mm-hmm. and I realized that, and I said it without even thinking, I hadn't the thought hadn't emerged in, in any way until that moment. I said, actually. Indian music is binary music. And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, And I just said it because I knew that from al Mm -hmm. And he said, oh, yeah, that's right. (laughs) I said, that's like the zeros and ones of of a binary language. I said, I don't think it was intentionally so. And yet the idea of building up structures out of zeros and ones, which is, that is computer language. That was existing in, in India for hundreds of years.
2: Now, what you've done with that understanding and with all the great work that you've done today, I think it's, it's overwhelmingly loved and embraced and studied, but that was not always the case. There was a time when the music world, when you were first coming up, really sort of shunned you. And I wonder why was that and why did it change?
0: Well, what we were taught when we were young people at whatever school, it could have been Columbia or it could have been at Juilliard or whatever, wherever you were, we were taught that modern music would follow a certain pattern. It was going to follow the music of Schoenberg and Weber and Berg and uh, there would be new composers like Bulas and so forth, but we were basically part of that school, that lineage. My generation said, you know what, we don't think so. Mm-hmm. And we changed the argument. And uh, I changed it by using a radically different structure. And though we talked about this uh, binary languages as being common in India, it was not We're talking about the 60s now. Well, well before the computer age where this language became known. We didn't even know what a binary language was. I knew what it was because I was working with it. I had begun Einstein on the Beaches is is completely a binary piece. Completely.
2: Just for anyone who hasn't yet been fortunate enough to discover, let's just note, this was your first opera, 1976, Five Hours. Well, you have
0: to understand something. Yes. It, It was so radical that very well-educated, smart people couldn't hear it.
2: So what were the people who, who didn't get you, what were they hearing?
0: They thought they were hearing the same thing over and over again. Did that bother not you? Through. Oh, I didn't care. I didn't care what they thought. I wasn't teaching at any of their schools. Right. It didn't matter to me at all.
2: And in fact, you've said that the, the reason that the argument has gone away is what? The people that are now in power. Well, they're all dead. The people that were in power are dead, and the people who are in power are the ones who grew up on your music. Yeah, that's
0: right. Don't worry about the people who hate your music. They'll die.
2: <laughs> you just got to outlast them. That's yeah, the, no,
0: And that's easy right. to do because right. they're in their 50s and 60s. You're in your 20s and 30s. Right. Said, Take it easy. <laughs> you know what? It turned out to be absolutely true. Yeah. And how can it be otherwise? Right. That's just, it's not a law of nature, it's right. nature itself.
2: So, 41 years ago, almost half a lifetime basically ago Einstein on the Beach comes along you didn't come along you made you made it come along it was a huge thing that today is still considered one of your masterpieces and I just wonder did you know in the making of it how early on did you realize you were onto something special
0: the reality was that my audiences were for years were very small however they were real I had a a big studio we called it a loft on the corner of Bleecker and Elizabeth Street a number of tunnels in the street it's not there anymore it's now a condominium which would <laughs> probably cost you a couple million dollars right, to buy right. it. in those days i could rent it for 150 dollars wow. so we had concerts every sunday it was just our uh what we did my ensemble and people came and right. I,
2: anderson I, I was reading you had a whole crew of people wait, that well, people
0: i look i had an audience they were following my music i was doing music in 12 parts and every two months, there would be a new part, part three, and then I would put up signs around Soho, part four this Sunday, <laughs> part five. I right. mean, I, uh, twelve parts became a sequence of pieces. I finished it, actually, it took me three years to finish it, wow. but it was done. I had an audience, an audience that were interested in what I was doing. I had very good musicians to play with. You know what, I thought I was successful.
2: And yet, you went, even after Einstein on the Beach, you went back to driving a cab. Well, it wasn't to, like it changed well, overnight, I, right?
0: I, I didn't say it was, uh, being famous and being rich is not the same thing. Right. Rich and famous is just a, that's kind of a joke from right. where I come from. <laughs> you can be famous and not have any money. Right. And neither had no, anything to do with who you, you were and what you did. It didn't really particularly bother me, though. At a certain point, I remember when I was 41 thinking, on my 41st birthday, I was thinking, I wonder how much longer I'm going to be, Doing this. That was maybe cab driving. Doing music? Then. No, no, music was for sure. Okay. But how much longer would I have to drive a cab? Within three or four months, my cab driver license came up for renewal, and I renewed it. But I didn't drive anymore.
2: Because what happened?
0: What really happened is I got a commission from the Netherlands Opera to write Satyagraha.
2: Which is basically about Gandhi and South Gandhi. Africa, right? Uh,
0: so Bob Wilson and I lost money on Einstein. Well, with Satya Graha, I got my first real commission. money. And it was from a Dutch opera company.
2: So it was your, not your first opera, Einstein on the Beach, but the second, the second Satya one. Graha. That and did. That,
0: but, however, it only ran, that this first production, only lasted a couple of years. I don't think that piece was played again for about 12 or 15 years. It turned out to be also too radical, but radical and didn't sound like Einstein. And that was part of the problem was that people who liked Einstein, some of them didn't like Satyagraha Graha because it didn't sound like Einstein. Yeah. But of course it didn't. Why would I? And I said, well, why would I write the son of Einstein? Right. Why would I do that? <laughs> but I continue. I was actually on a mission. I, I The third opera was Akhenaten. And by the way, that I saw it here in Los Angeles. Recently. Uh, recently, yeah. a, a production from the International Opera. Again, it was not like Sacha Gronhardt. It wasn't right. like Einstein. So those three operas kind of launched me into the opera world. And
2: people just didn't know how to categorize you. That always, disconcer- oh. it's disconcerting to people. I,
0: I wasn't, I'll do truthful, I wasn't very helpful. <laughs> First of all, uh, no one ever asked me, so right. I never explained it. Right. Now you're asking me. and, and It's now very people, interesting. You know, we talk about it, but for years, no one didn't say, well, how do you do this music? Right. I could have said additive process. I could have... <laughs> Use used a lot of different words for it, but no one asked me, so I didn't say anything.
2: I read that another key turning point for you was a conversation with Jerry Lieber, who people know from Lieber and Stoller. They did so many great, I guess, Elvis songs and other others as well, of course. But how did you cross paths with Jerry, and why was it such an important well, Jerry conversation?
0: Jerry was, uh, uh, was married to a friend of mine, Barbara Rose, who was an art critic, and that's how I knew Barbara through the art world. We were out one night. I was out with him. I just had met him. And he said, Glass. He said, Where are you from? I said, From Baltimore. And he said, Baltimore. She says Baltimore. B-A-L-D-I-M-E-R. Yeah, right. Baltimore. Baltimore. So he said, Baltimore. Right. Well, where'd you go to school? I said, I went to City. He said, I went to that school. He said, Was your mother the librarian? I said, My mother was a librarian. He said, Oh my God. <laughs> I can't believe this. This guy is much older than me. Right. He said, uh, you know your mother saved my butt. I said, Really? <laughs> he said, Well I was in the school with a lot of Polish guys there. And a little Jewish kid got out of school, and they beat the crap out yeah. of me. And he said, so I would go to the library, mm. and your mother put me to work putting away books, and and by 4 o'clock, the kids were all gone, and I could go home. <laughs> and I said, yeah. I said, yeah, that sounds like, well, I I, said, I was a kid at the back looking at the catalogs to go to see. Right. You know, we probably had cross peers yeah, and we yeah, didn't yeah, know yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. He paused for me, and he said, you know what, I'm going to change your life. I said, <laughs> really? How are you going to do that? He said, I'll tell you what, come down and see me at the Brawl building. I went to the Brawl building. I was so curious. I went down. Do you want me to tell you the whole story? Yeah, So, that is. so I'm walking down the, the hallway to his place. He installed Mike Stoller, yep. all the Esway Process coasters, gold stars, gold star records all the way down, gold records all the way all down. All the Elvis oh, and Carol King and all that, right? must have been 30 records there. Right. And I walk into, he's sitting at his desk with his feet on the desk like this, you know, <laughs> relaxed, and he said, I, sit down. He said, I said, I'm very impressed, Jerry. Did you, you did all this. He said, yeah. Mike did the music and I did the words.
2: Yeah. So we own it
0: together. He said, go over to that door and take a look. I said, what? He said just open the door. And open the door and I saw about 24 desks with men and women at the desks. And they had headphones on and they were writing things. He said, what do you think they're doing? I said, I have no idea. He said, they're finding money under stones. <laughs> I said, well, what do you mean? He said, when someone takes a song that Mike and I have written, and they sing it, and it's on the radio, they have to pay us. Mm-hmm. So what they're doing is they're, they're combing through the well, repertoire is, of, the, yeah, of, yeah. This, of, the, of the... And he said, That's this is how we make our money. And so we shut the door, and he sat down, and said, okay, I want you to go down to Center Street. It's 100 Center Street. It's still there. Mm-hmm. Go in there, and I want you to register yourself as a publisher. Mm-hmm he said, if you want to, you can register as a composer. It doesn't matter. Right. Make just sure you're a publisher. Right. Well, why would I do that? I said, well, if you're the publisher, you own the music. <laughs> he said, I own all my music. Right, right. And so I, we talked a little bit more. But I did, I think, probably the next day, I went down to Center Street. And they said, do you want to do it as a DBA doing business as? Yes. Or do you want to be a licensed publisher? I said, I want to be a licensed publisher. <laughs> and for, I think, it's amazing, I think for $250, I was able to register as a publisher.
2: And financially, it just changed everything.
0: Well, not right away. Right. Let's say, maybe 20 years later, from that, I was asked to go up to see, went up to Shermer's at the time. They were, now they're owned by music sales, but at the time it was Shermer's. And I said, uh, they wanted to talk. I said, what do you Mm -hmm. want to talk about? They said, well, would you like to be published by us? I said, well, what's the deal? I said, they said, what do you mean? I said, well, what are you paying me? Um, and this is verbatim right. they said oh, oh no we're not going to pay you anything I said well why would I do that right. <laughs> so the guy goes out and he comes back and he puts on the desk he says it's a piece by Copeland a piece by Bernstein a piece by Shostakovich he said he shows you he said what do you think of that he said pretty good music he said <laughs> do you want to be with them I said why would I want to be with them yeah they're... <laughs> You know, I said I don't get it right. said, what's the deal he said well you can be these are your colleagues I said i tell you what, I'm going home now. If you have an offer to make, you can write me a letter. If I don't reply, it's no. Right. right. And that was that's the first and last time any publisher ever talked to me.
2: Like that, because otherwise you, because the way well, it worked was that you were your master of your own.
0: Well, I owned 100% of my work. My friends were owning 50% of their work. And so in a
2: business in which it's increasingly hard for people who make music to also make money for that music, That was a a, a key thing.
0: I wrote a lot of music, and some of it... And then we discovered what licensing music is. We figured out that people wanted music for movies, they wanted it for television. And I began to work with people. I hired someone to run the company, and they began selling the music to wherever they could. And then we we ended up with an income stream. We ended up with five or six people working for me. And basically, I was still performing. Most of my... I would say... Half my income is from playing, and half is from writing. Wow!
2: I want to talk about when you when you talk about performing. It's often it's Did with the like ensemble. That, that long story. No, it's great. I think it's a great story. It's a nice lesson for people to look out for themselves.
0: You know what? Very few people listen to this story. Uh, I can't tell you how many composers have I told this to, and they say, you know, we're like, I don't want to do that. That's, that's They'd their, rather their give their it up let someone else do it for them. Oh my gosh! Well, when you talk
2: about performing, what you've generally met is performing with your ensemble. and
0: Yes, but I also now am doing other ensemble work. I'm doing also solo concerts, concerts with other pianists. The ensemble still exists, and the, right. the repertoire that was mostly composed between 1968 and maybe maybe 30 years, mm-hmm. that repertoire is still there, and we still play that It's the music. same
2: core group of people. It's the
0: same, many of the same people. Yeah. Two of them are Michael Reisman, the music director, was from 73. Uh, but John Gibson started with me in 68. He's still playing.
2: That's amazing. The reason I bring that up is that you have been described. I just saw one article in particular that had a nice comparison. They said you are the most collaborative composer since Travinsky. You You not only do the ensemble, but you also have teamed up with, in so many different ways on different things with such a variety of musicians from David Bowie to you name it. And so I want to ask you, Why are many composers not that collaborative,
0: and why are you drawn to collaborations like that? I can't answer the first question, but I can answer the second question. What I discovered was that the problem wasn't finding a style of music. That was easy. The problem was changing and developing. I was also working for financial reasons. I was working in theater. I was writing music for plays. I began writing music for operas and films. So films came along with Mishima. That was the first big one. But even
2: before uh, Koyanis,
0: No, Kanskasie was first. That was eighty-one. Okay. Mishima was eighty-seven. Okay. I may be off by a year but here. Or there.
2: it was operas, then symphonies, starting with the, I think, the Bowie collaboration no. in the eighties. Then ballets and film scores. So all of those other things, operas. Maybe it's just you, right? No, well,
0: here's the point. Okay. What I discovered was that. What I was interested in was a gradual or any kind of uh, growth and change in the music. I wasn't interested in writing the same music over again. And I found out when I changed collaborators, the whole ball game changed. The whole field changed. So if I worked with Bob it was one thing, but I, after Einstein, I didn't work with Bob again for eight years. I worked with other people because I didn't want to. I didn't want to have a partner. I wanted to have other influences. Mm-hmm. And I think quite rightly so that if I, different collaborators would bring different ideas and did so I I had a rule of thumb it was very simple I never work with the same person twice in a row Mm -hmm. and often not for years Mm -hmm. but let's say if you're working you have a, a choreographer a lighting person someone who writes text there are all these different things that come up in theater comes up in dance and even comes up in concert music but I would keep one (laughs) <laughs> because I wanted some continuity, right, so, so it, maybe it was the designer. But not so, okay, not the, well, the next piece yeah. I'd do with the same designer. Right. But then he would be gone, right. and then the next one I would might keep. I might keep the director. I was often in a position of choosing that because I was. I thought of the projects myself, whether it was like doing La Bette, a story of, of Cocktails, mm-hmm. or a, a piece with Alan Ginsberg, a hydrogen jukebox. I did a lot of these collaborative works. And the point was that when I was engaged with a fellow author or a fellow collaborator, invariably I had a new problem to solve. The most radical one was, for example, I wanted to work with Fodemoso Suso, who was a choral player from the Gambia. A choral is a a harp-like instrument. Mm -hmm. It's not very big, but it's the major instrument of that country. And just finding a common language with him, when he walked into the room, He didn't even call the notes by the same names. I mean, we were really in another world. And that led me also into doing more and more work with indigenous people. I'm working now with a couple of wonderful musicians from Mexico who live in the mountains. They don't even speak Spanish.
2: Now, what's at the root of this openness, this curiosity, which not not everybody has? Stop me if it's too personal, but I mean, I I believe you're... A, a Buddhist practicing person is you it can something leave what in you there? Like, but
0: I'm not going to agree with you.
2: Okay, okay. But is there? Could it be something as rooted as in you as that?
0: What when what, you when you put a the label that I'm stuck with it? Okay. But why not say you do yoga, you you're, you're doing tai chi, or you're doing? Okay. It. Who knows? Okay. But so we don't. I don't. I don't join clubs like that. Okay. On the other hand, I belong to a lot of clubs.
2: Right. <laughs> All right. You diagnose it then. Why are you more open than most people to things like that?
0: The system worked very well for me. Mm-hmm. When I worked with four-day, it changed how I wrote. I played music. Mm-hmm. I had to play differently in order to play with this instrument. And I, be, I be, And so my language became altered. It happened almost with any kind of a writer I work with. Part of the description of the work to the table is different. It can be a writer. It can be a designer. It can be a choreographer. I've worked with a lot of dancers, but never with two pieces in a row. So I've worked with Twyla Thorpe. I've worked with Melissa Finley. I've worked with all kinds of sure. dance companies and when I go to work with a dance company I'll go look at the. the first thing I want to do is I go look at the dance and I said what about this dance is interesting to mm-hmm. me and that becomes part of the language I work in yeah. so the reason I do it is because it works so well yeah here's what I discovered the best thing is to be in a place where you don't actually know what you're doing
2: it doesn't scare you
0: well what's even more scary is not being able to write music at all right. that would be scary right. But this doesn't produce that. It has the other effect. It makes it requires invention. It requires that you change what you're doing. Right. So, now, the funny thing is that it didn't actually negate what I had just done. It just added to sure. it. So sure. that at this point, these symphonies, um, symphony number 9 and not 10 and 11, they have all kinds of things in them, which are reminiscent of other things, but they're all together different. I think, and I'm told, that the music always sounds like me, which... In a way, surprises me, but in another way, it indicates that there's a core to the music which connects to some kind of a musical personality that seems to allow for continuity. Sure. At the same time, Darwin will tell you there's continuity and change. is the story of life. That's the whole <laughs> business. Mutation and natural selection. That's what it is.
2: I want to ask you about film scoring because I think that Obviously, that's what brings you to town today, the connection to that. And I'm going to get to Jane specifically, but I want to ask you, let's just note, first of all, your film scores include the likes of Kundun, The Hours, Notes on a Scandal, each of which brought you an Oscar nomination, and others that easily could have, like The Truman Show. So just an overall question, big picture question, how is film scoring most similar and also most different from the other types of composing that you do?
0: It's an intensely collaborative form. And also, when I come here to work, almost always I don't know who the editor is. I don't know the music editor. I don't know the... Pro- There's just too many. It's, uh, yeah. The film that we're doing now, Brad Morgan, he wanted me. He didn't want someone who sounded like me. He wanted me.
2: And that's because he said he wanted his movie to sound like, quote, a cinematic opera, close quote. So that means he thinks immediately of Philip Glass.
0: Thankfully, I'm very happy yes. for that. So that, that, I got a nice job out of that. Right. But I didn't know him before then. Right. So now that was an interesting collaboration because he brought that's a whole different personality. I'd never met him before. The name of the game with, with music is you write the music you want to write and you try to get it into the film. Mm-hmm. And it's not that the director is resistant to it, but they have ideas too. So then basically some of the ideas will work. He'll, he can change a little bit. You can change a little bit. He had some very good ideas. I had some very good ideas. He liked some of my ideas. I liked some of his ideas. We ended up with a score. Right. We ended up with a score, which we both could. But it's not just the, the director. What I'm impressed with is the uh, the depth of talent in, in Hollywood. People think it's a commercial play. Oh, yeah, okay. In a certain way, you're talking about, you're describing one part of the salad. It's not the whole salad. Right. But what you're also talking about is a, a variety of talented people in in acting and lighting and editing this is the the, i think the capital i don't think there's any question about that
2: and another part of the salad that you have played in a lot is documentaries and i and it's the case with jane but it's also been the case most frequent i think your most frequent film collaborator is errol morris and some great documentaries dating back to the thin blue line
0: i love working with with errol and just so you know it we fight like dogs and cats <laughs> when we're writing, When I'm doing a piece for him, you can't. Put, it's, afterwards, it's comical, and the, the scores always come out right. Yeah, and there's yelling and screaming going on. It's like a hell's Kitchen going on. Well, he but, said he uh,
2: discovered you by attending a performance of music in twelve parts. 40 something years ago yeah, and, and he saw. said he's been in love ever since but he said you seemed surprised that he was a musician I didn't know he was a musician he, he
0: went to Juilliard was a cellist I had no idea and in fact I hold that against him because <laughs> he, he would say could you please send me uh, all the drills I, I like to play them on the piano I mean no one does that no. and it's that's really a pain in the butt <laughs> to have the, the director say I'm going to play the, your uh, you your know, music on the piano right? no I don't I'm not interested in his expertise <laughs> Uh, but, but it does so, it, it, what it does reveal, that he has a connection to music that's deep.
2: And you have a connection to documentaries, why? Is it because you wanna, well, you'll pick documentaries to work on because you su- support their message? No, there are less
0: people bothering you.
2: On documentaries. <laughs> I mean,
0: w- w- when I worked on The Hours, Scott Rudin was working as a producer. His input was crucial. He was a very smart guy, and the film got better because he beat us up all the time.
2: You don't mind getting
0: constant notes to be polite? Look, the proof is in the pudding. Sure. You know, when it comes down to that, when I look back on, I've done several things with, him. I think most were a scandal with, with Scott. He's a producer, really. Yeah. He's very funny. He wants to hear the cues. He said, let me hear the cues. He said, that's wonderful, wonderful. And he paused and he said, but there's one little thing. As soon as he says says that, I know I have to rewrite the whole thing. thing. (laughs) But but still, the point was that, that when I say this is a collaborative medium, that it depends on the people. You have to have people who have imagination and talent and understand the medium.
2: You've said that with the exception of Errol, quote, I worked with these directors once,
0: but they usually don't want to work with me again, close quote. Why would you say that? Well, oh, it's probably because they can't find the money. Oh, the yeah. <laughs> but that's, an, that's another story. Right, right. But I like uh, documentary filmmakers. In fact, there's a, a documentary film composer is kind of a... It's not a club, exactly. It's a they, they function as a group, in a way. And yeah. They have an office, and, they, and I do a benefit concert for them at a bar almost every year. Oh, that's great. Uh, I, I like working with... You know, I think of uh, documentary filmmakers like poets. Mm-hmm. Basically, they work their butts off, and don't pays any attention to what they do. Right. <laughs> yeah, they, well, they, basically, most documentary film—that's not true of this film. Right. Most documentary film, their audiences are each other. Right. To be truthful. Right. If you get it on TV, it's because you don't even get paid for it. No. It's no. It, it's, it's a free showing. On the other hand, I find them like poets, uh, with a tremendous passion, for what they do. Also, the other thing about document filmmakers they don't have enough money to fire you. <laughs> yeah, that's you know, they're kind of stuck with you. so so then you get through all the the tough parts without getting fired.
2: <laughs> well, let's talk about the, this one, Jane, in particular, because why did you agree to do it? And I understand that you did it without working from a even a forget about a final cut. You were working from very pretty raw footage, oh. right?
0: Uh, he was work- we were working kind of almost right next to each other. Uh, first of all, I had seen enough of the footage to see that it was a beautiful, beautifully shot film. The people in the film are interesting, the animals, are- the whole thing is unusual. Mm-hmm. Besides that, somehow National Geographic had commissioned this mm-hmm. some years ago. It had gone through a kind of, I don't know what the process was, but it, it's the original film. I guess it's been digitalized and yeah, it's been improved. And up, yeah. When you look at it now, it looks like it was filmed last month. Yep. It looks like it's a modern film. And in many ways, of course, it is. Mm-hmm. But in, in the same way, it has the same virtue of longevity that Jane herself has. Yes. It's still her. Yeah, you know, She's you know, from 23 to 83, the yeah. same person. But Brett managed to cross, to get out of the documentary film ghetto, yeah, right. He got out of it, and he said, "He said, I. He said, I don't know how we did it. It's, it's but amazing. It, but I think it was a question of there was a tremendous material to work with. He had a, a good knack of how knowing how to put it together. She trusted him, and they worked very well together. We worked well together. We had different ideas sometimes, but we always came to a solution.
2: And I suspect. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but I suspect that you may have felt a particular maybe even not consciously, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but a connection to Jane. Let's note, you're roughly the same age. You've both been doing what you love for almost your entire lives. The work that you do, that you each do, is very solitary a lot of the time. Did you connect to her? Forget about the animals. you put it that way,
0: I I have to agree. (laughs) But I didn't think of it that way. I thought of it, uh, I was very intrigued by this young woman that I saw. She spent the first three months... Waiting to even to see the chimpanzees, finally one of them led her back to the to where they were all living. Like most people would have she was sitting around with binoculars, waiting for something to happen, and she just sat and waited. And she, I I don't know. You'd have to ask her what gave her the strength to do that. But the strength to do that, will to also tell you, the strength that kept her there for the next twenty, thirty years, mm-hmm. however long it was. Yeah, it's interesting. She had a uh, From the movie, you can see that I have hardly talked to her. I only met her briefly just a little while ago. Today. Yeah. Oh my God. But she, she talked about this was that she had always wanted to do, long before she she got the job. She always wanted to go to Africa and live with animals and to to study it, and that is what she ended up doing. And so there's a, you know, that's the kind of integrity that composers have. Mm -hmm. You want to write music, you don't know who's going to hear it, you don't know where it's going to go. But you know that's what you're going to you're do. Gonna do it. Well, that's, to me, it's like it's a very similar personality. And so, of course, it's easy to identify with it. And uh, the film itself is physically so beautiful. Yes. I talked to Brad and to her, we both said, we can't believe that we're at the Hollywood Bowl and a sold out a concert. How can that happen Just to a documentary film? Yeah. And yet, uh, I think that we, it was like we were too close to the rose to see what, the rose localized. Yes. Right. You know, we couldn't see we couldn't see it because we're being too close to it. But if we move back from it a little wall, you can see the qualities oh, that the film had were there for us to see. All along, yeah. We didn't even talk about it. When I talked with Brett, we were talking about uh, the technical things: how scenes work together, how long they should be, how many themes there should be. These are things that filmmakers and composers can talk about.
2: Let's talk about your specific challenge here, because it seems like. There's
0: actually two movies here in this in That's this exactly one movie. Right.
2: Well, take it away, please. Well, there,
0: there's the big picture, which is, which is the, the huge savannas with thousands of animals. Then there are the intimate scenes with her, not only with the chimpanzees, but with, with her husband and her with the cinematographer. They got married <laughs> during the f- yeah filming, her right. And her son later on, right. And so the you, epic and the intimate, right? You have the intimate and the, uh, and the epic, but in a certain way, you can swap them around. <laughs> you okay. could say maybe the epic is really the domestic scene and the intimate is the savanna i mean and so you, you can make that them. argument too did you mix that up uh you would not mix no, it up I but didn't, did you i, I don't I, because when i saw these images of the thousands of animals uh, of course it was filmed from a distance but with photographic lenses and that yeah. i don't know how many thousand feet he was away from it but it couldn't have been anywhere near no. them if they had Observed to me either through smell or through sight they would have, they would he wouldn't have been there right. they would have he would have been there alone right. I don't think they would have attacked <laughs> he, they would have disappeared right. when I looked at those scenes and I said, there has to be a big theme here. there has to be something big here. And I rewrote that theme a couple of times, and there were two different ones, and that comes in different places in the movie. and then when I was working on the more intimate scenes, I wanted to have something that would be like a leitmotif for the... But the characters were too different. I mean, Hugo, when he first shows up smoking cigarettes and <laughs> looking like a... Kind of a little bit out of place, right. out of his own. Right. And then you see him later in the film when he has now become part of, this, part of the, the process. It's too complex. Sure. So it calls for more... For different music at different places. But I was aware all the time of... what, Let's say, what the scale of the movie is at any place... And, and if you look at it just from that point of view you can you can make a graph of what the picture's gonna look like Brett was very aware of that he knew all, he knew exactly what he was doing and how he did it and i only su- really surprised him once and he liked the surprise a lot what was that uh, one of the first early themes uh, when she was alone in uh, for the first time in africa yeah. and i he suggested one theme and i wrote a, i just wrote a different one and, and he said <laughs> Oh, that's great. You know, he was, it was okay. Yeah. He was okay with it. But, but, but most of the time, I would say, I knew that we were looking at the same movie. Right. I mean, the problem is if you're looking, if two people are looking at a different movie, then, then you're in you the trouble. But I think we both, uh, I mean, I, I shared with him his admiration for Jane and for the virtually heroic quality of her life because she lived alone a lot yeah. of the time. Eventually, her mother shows up. That's a wonderful part when yeah. her mother comes and lives with her for a while. Right. But many of those early years, she was alone.
2: Well, with our last two minutes here, I wonder if we can do something that I, I we call rapid fire. Just the first thing that comes to your mind when in response to a few different prompts. So first thing, where does the music actually come from?
0: What What is your main inspiration? The picture. The picture.
2: And not, I'm the, talking about for anything you do.
0: No, to me, uh, it's different. With a film... Uh, when I see the picture, I want to know. What, I ask myself, what is the music that goes here? I don't ask what is the music I want you to hear. That's right. a different question. Right. I said, what music belongs to that picture? And if I if I look at it, and sometimes I don't get it right away, but that's where it will come from.
2: Where do you write most of the time?
0: Oh, I write in my music room at home. Uh, but I I can write in hotels. I'm on the road, not so much. I, I'd say. 80, 90 days a year. That's not that bad. I mean, a lot lot of people are doing 200 days. I don't do that much. But I'm not home, and then I I bring music with me, and I can... Sometimes, when I go to Europe, I'll stay on American time and write all night, have breakfast in the morning with everyone else and go to sleep, get up at (laughs) noon and have breakfast, and it kind of works that way.
2: Who, if anyone, is your sounding board before you share your music with the world Whose, whose feedback, if anyone, matters to you? Well, the
0: wonderful woman I'm with is Valerie Tsukata. Okay. She's the first one to hear it. There <laughs> so. you go. What
2: is the role of fame in your life?
0: It's a big nuisance. Yeah? It's a, you know, I, I tell you what's wrong. With, I can't tell you how many selfies that you have <laughs> to do. It's, it's the epidemic. I mean, it's much worse than than just signing a book right. because they never get it right the first time no I didn't get it let me do it again <laughs> and you can't put, and they said, well what are you going to do with it it right. goes on, I guess it goes on to face Facebook yeah. that's it are
2: you I, okay yeah. that,
0: what, what do I think of that it's, it's complete nuisance of all the
2: mediums media in which you've worked if you could only work in one which would it be it would be opera
0: it would be opera why it not close everything else there, okay you know what has uh, we have text we have image we have movement and we have music Great answer. The four elements, earth, air, fire, and water.
2: Are you ever tempted to try to write something that would be popular with the kids? You know, could, and could you... I've done it. I've written music for that. For kids, okay. You've noted before, not, it didn't sound at all bitter, but you just noted, you haven't necessarily won some of the prizes that you would, people would assume you have won. The Pulitzer, the MacArthur, the Oscar. You've said of the Oscar, quote... They needed people like me to get nominated so that the people who won looked
0: good. I said, "You can't have a winner without having losers." Okay, okay. let's get it more succinctly, and it's quite the point. Okay,
2: so so, would an Oscar mean something to you?
0: I, I don't think I'm gonna get an Oscar anytime. I'm just not. Uh, I think I have a I have a role to play in Hollywood, and there's a reason why I'm there when I get nominated because people like the hours or people like Quentin, but. It's not going to be in the mainstream. It means I'm, I'm simply not going to be there. But that doesn't actually. When I go to the Oscars, I go like a very. I, I go to see what people are wearing, what they're doing. <laughs> we, I have a good time. I've taken my sister there. I've taken my brother there. I've, I mean, you know, it's I, a fun I, night. I usually get a guest to come with me.
2: Last three. Who's the greatest living classical composer other than Philip Glass? Arvo Park. Arvo Park. Oh, that's an easy one. It's easy. Like you, oh, I was amazed I, how quickly you gave that. Oh, answer. a lot of people will tell you that. Why, at the core, do you continue to make music even long after you could have retired and rested on your laurels? You've made a, well, you've made I, a lot I of didn't,
0: money. I didn't go into music to even have laurels. I didn't go into music to make money. Right. So those aren't, they don't signal anything to me at all. Right. I write music because I want to hear what's going to happen next.
2: And lastly, setting aside all humility, what do you think your legacy will be? What do you hope it will be many years from you now know, when I, we're I, all gone?
0: I, I've trained myself not to think about that because it's just a waste of time
2: Now is what matters?
0: Well, I, I would like Satyagraha to be the piece that people remember, but I'm not sure that that will be true Satyagraha is an opera about social change and nonviolence. I do a lot of things uh, uh, Political issues come up in a lot of the opposite opera about what are called uh, uh, Appomattox about the voting rights act. I did an opera with the trial by Kafka, which is about corruption in government i'm very interested in social issues and one of the reasons i write operas is that that's one of the places where social issues can can easily become part of the part of the work well um, i so appreciate this i can't wait to see you tonight at the hollywood bowl and
2: thank you for doing this really happy appreciate to be here it. thank you thanks very much for tuning in to awards chatter we really appreciate you taking the time to do that